In an effort to revive Platonism in America, we're going to read Thomas Taylor in America because we feel that America needs a boost, maybe a maybe a bailout or something, a philosophical bailout. Um, so page eighty-seven continued from yesterday's. Thomas Thomas N. Taylor in America. The Platonist continued sporadically for most of eight years, being discontinued with the June issue of 1888, only a few weeks after the death of Alcott. Less than a year after the final session of the Concord School of Philosophy, Probably that's Concord, Massachusetts, where Thoreau and Emerson lived. And Alcott is Bronson Alcott, the father of Louisa May. For a few months, Emily's out of town, dear. She, Emily, dear, is in Amherst. Mm, it's farther than you think by horse and carriage. It's not that. It's her fault she didn't go out. <laughs> she could have passed by Concord on the way to uh, Boston. Or... More in 1889 and 1890, Johnson was to edit the Bibliotheca Platonica, but a period was coming to an end. Although this is not the time to trace the history of Johnson's thankless editorial labors, it is appropriate to emphasize the place his periodicals had in reflecting American idealism and popularizing Neoplatonic doctrines. See, this is important reading because we're saying that uh, American transcendentalism largely came about from Neoplatonism, which largely came about from Thomas Taylor. Always in financial straits, the Platonist was nevertheless widely distributed, going to nearly all sections of the globe. According to an editorial note in the first volume, it had, quote, subscribers in America, Great Britain, France, Germany, India, Greece. Johnson corresponded with the thinkers of two continents and continued to disseminate the doctrines of platonic idealism, though he fought a losing battle against an adverse philosophic climate. In part, at least, he was stimulated by the impulse which led Emerson and Alcott to attempt the fusion of paganism and Christianity. Is that what we're doing? I guess we're kind of fusionist. I'm trying to fuse even more than that. My prior reading was Sufism. Refusion of paganism and Christianity as the epigraph or motto to volume two indicates Christianity is esoterically identical with philosophy. Are we trying to fuse together all forms of religion like Buddhism and Sufism and Sikhism and Islam and Christianity and paganism? But this, that there is a great difference suggested clearly in the work Esoteric. 
with both Emerson and Alcott, the Christianity was a powerful ingredient. Not so with Johnson and his fellow worshippers at the shrine of Plato and his, quote, golden chain of followers. Their interest, in varying degrees, to be sure, lay in philosophy rather than organized religion, to which they were, in fact, antagonistic. In the last year of the Platonist, 1888, Johnson adopted his, for his title page a motto from Proclus, which illustrates, ironically, the strength of his commitment to a losing cause. <laughs> God. Quote, I shall, should say, that the Platonic philosophy came to mankind for the benefit of terrestrial souls in place of statues, temples, and the whole of sacred institutions, and that it is the leader of salvation alike to the men that now are and to those who shall come hereafter. Even a fairly casual examination of the table of contents in the Platonist, that's a magazine, the Platonist, will reveal that the steady fare of the early numbers consisted chiefly of reprints from Taylor and translations and commentaries, which were heavily indebted to him. That's like his magazine. <laughs> but gradually moved towards theosophy and spiritualism. Neoplatonic idealism interpreted by Emerson is one thing, by Madame Blavatsky quite another. One sentence from an article, quote, on, quote, the way and the wisdom teachers, unquote, will suggest the gradual transmutation, quote, the present revival of mysticism, more especially the return of many modern Christians to the beliefs of the Neoplatonic sin, Neoplatonism heretics is largely a mere reaction from the cold barren dogmas of modern science. Alcott might not have known quite what he disagreed with in such a passage, but he would have been uneasy at the tone. Like Thomas Taylor and Emerson, he did not denigrate the sciences insisting rather that they should function ideally as symbolic projectors of a higher truth. Although Johnson was inclined towards the more formally philosophical side of Neoplatonism, he extended the scope of his journal, quote, to include not only the wisdom religions of the archaic period oriental as well as occidental philosophy and expositions of the intrinsic and esoteric nature of the various beliefs of the world. The late issues of the Platonist are loaded with such articles as, quote, the philosophical leaders, unquote, the Kabbalah, unquote, the philosopher's stone, the tarot, etc., but this trend is clearly contrary to the editor's original intention and may have been largely responsible for the discontinuance of the Platonist and the founding of its short-lived successor, Bibliotheca Platonica, which reaffirmed Johnson's desire, quote, to make the writings of Plato and his chief disciples generally accessible to the thinkers of this country.
Are we making uh, Plato accessible to the thinkers of this country? Should already be, though. What are they doing up at Harvard and Yale and Ox Oxford and Cambridge? I don't know. Did they close? <laughs> Lonely, I fear. Lonely, I fear. Frequently misunderstood, rarely appreciated. Thomas M. Johnson was, in many respects, a remarkable man. Like Thomas Taylor, he was something of an anachronism almost from the beginning. But he fought the good fight. And when the history of transcendentalism in the West is written, he will be recognized for what he was, the staunch defender of the ancient faith. Although he faced the incredible odds of materialism's resist, resistless tide, he never doubted that he would at last be justified, and America would surely be the West without men like him and his master Alcott. Well, we got a Louisa May Alcott, right? Mm -hmm. Louisa wrote Little Women. <laughs> she was more famous than her father. father eh? She's far more famous than her father. And she worked as a nurse in the Civil War. Well, Louisa didn't. Well, remember, she probably took a walk and went on a hike with <laughs> Henry David Thoreau, and he, she certainly knew Emerson and went, used to borrow books from him. She was younger. She was like 15 years younger than Thoreau. Remember how they said that the one character could have been modeled after Thoreau? Who's the guy in Little Women? Hmm. It's not him, but it's modeled on him. No, uh, the guy, uh, the guy in the book, I don't remember. A far better known than, remember how they said that one half of American literature came from one town and in one decade. <laughs> That's because of the Platonist. And just in Concord, Massachusetts. Uh -huh. Didn't we have Melville, and didn't we have Emerson, and didn't we have Thoreau, and didn't we have Hawthorne? So Albert have this full... Uh, All American literature comes from Concord. Who? Albert. Uh, well, Thoreau and his brother had a school where they taught... They knew, Thoreau knew Greek. Thoreau went to Harvard. Thoreau knew... knew Albert also. Who? Albert. Alcott? Alcott. Alcott knew Greek, obviously. He read, he also read Greek. Very few of them actually read Greek. What did you teach in the school he They taught some Greek classics, I think. Yeah, they used to teach classics in the school in Concord. Why they closed it exactly? What should they close? The Platonist or the school? Most schools. Well, they close from time to time. I don't know. That's a you'll look at the podcast on throw. Alcott? Mm -hmm. Alcott used to run out of money. He had to get a bailout from Emerson. We're right now bailing out America from its uh, coronavirus through Neoplatonism.
Needs a philosophical bailout, I think. Uh -huh. What do you think, uh? Huh? What is it? Who needed? Yeah, so you can listen to the podcast on Thoreau, actually. Henry David Thoreau's journals and the life of Henry David Thoreau. Or what else could you watch? You could read a little women or read a biography of Louisa May Alcott. Now, Bronson Alcott's only known as a character within transcendentalism. He's not well known. Though he should be well more well known. He's there's a number of them that shouldn't didn't get as well known as they should be. A far better known man whose impact on American thought will ultimately be less enduring was Hiram K. Jones, the philosopher-physician of Jacksonville, Illinois, who founded an important Plato club in 1865 and became one of the chief lecturers in Alcott's Concord School. See, they had, like, lectures. They had TED Talks in those days. So, remember how Thoreau and, and Emerson used to give TED Talks <laughs> in Concord? <laughs> Actually, they traveled around the world giving TED Talks. <laughs> Lectures. Like Johnson and Harris, Jones became a convert to transcendental idealism. Do you feel that you're converted to transcendental idealism? From a child, do you feel you were idealistic? Were you idealistic? Why didn't you just stay on the farm and grow tobacco or something? Huh? Why did you take an interest in books, even? Huh? You could have been a convert to transcendental idealism while still in college. His recollection of the experience will help to remind us of Emerson's seminal position in the Platonic Revival, as well as the strength of the movement. Quote, when I was a student in Illinois College, there were two other students and myself who got hold of Emerson's writings. Of course, we were ridiculed for dabbling in such nonsense. These writings were then denounced on all sides. Now, within one short lifetime, that thought had con has conquered and subdued all minds. Even with the reasonable account for enthusiasm, this statement was surely impressive, as indeed was Jones's himself. Quote, he was led, unquote, as Henry Pockman puts it, quote, by natural stages from Emerson to Plato, unquote, although his Plato Club was less historical in his orientation than the Philosophical Society in St. Louis. Jones himself was a good scholar. Jones, dear, is like a translator. He translated Plato, I think. Jones himself was a good scholar, and the club attracted remarkable attention. In the words of his secretary, Louis J. Block, it has been honored by the presence of many distinguished visitors. Among these may be mentioned A. Alcott, Bronson Alcott, Dr. William T. Harris, Ralph Waldo Emerson, D.J. Snyder, Thos M. Johnson, M. K. H. H. Morgan, and Theos Davidson. These visitations have given rise to annotated discussions and the clear enunciations of opinions. Clubs in the neighboring city, Quincy, have known their interest in the interpretations of Dr. Jones and K. 
considerable correspondence has ensued with various individuals and associations. This is the part where you make coffee. No? no? From time to time throughout its erratic history, the Platonists carried notices about Dr. Jones's club and its international brother, the American Academy. And Johnson was clearly in sympathy with its aims and its approach to idealistic philosophy, though never such an avowed disciple of Thomas Taylor as Johnson was. Quote, Jones possessed and consulted Taylor's books, unquote, and quote, they were the scriptures from which he drew his platonic text, as appears from the resume of the club creed, unquote. These are the conclusions of Ronald Levinson, who had the good fortune to consult Louis Bloch about the Jacksonville Club. According to Locke, quote, the myth mythologic atmosphere in which Taylor lived and his doctrine of the interwoven spheres appealed profoundly to Jones and deeply influenced his lectures. If ever Thomas Taylor possessed an American follower in close parallel, that man was Dr. Jones. Jones, like Emerson and Jack Johnson, sought information about Taylor's family and burial place and was, like them, disappointed that people of his native country should have taken so little notice of Taylor. See, you're not famous in your own country. <laughs> only, uh, only overseas. <laughs> Mostly my poetry is read by Pakistan. <laughs> Levinson's observation about the importance of Taylor to the Jacksonville group is equally true of other Plato clubs, most of which were modeled on the parent club. It was Levinson writes, quote, a western wing of the great movement of New England transcendentalism on its neoplatonic side, the important fact for our purpose is that for the Neoplatonism of the entire movement, Taylor is practically the sole source. As in Concord, so here in the Middle West, no admirer of Plato could make his way without Taylor's translations and comments until while the students of Platonus or Ambicus or of Proclus was obliged to build wholly upon Taylor's foundations. The best-known child of the parent company was the one organized at Quincy, Illinois, by Samuel H. Emery. Although its motives were similar to those of the Jacksonville Club, it was apparently much less formal in its recording and hence of much less value to the student of the movement. The interests of the Quincy group were about equally divided between Hegelianism and Hegelianism and Platonism, but their Platonism did not have the strong Neoplatonic bias of the other groups, and the Quincy Club is not, therefore, important to this study. Though Emery was to become the permanent director of the Concord School, 
The most famous development of all this ferment was, of course, the Concord School of Philosophy. Although it was long a dream of Emerson and Alcott, it would never have been more than that without the active endorsement of the Westerners, especially Jones and Harris. During Alcott's visit to Jacksonville in 1871, Jones and his friends had urged him to establish the school, but nothing happened until Jones visited Concord in the summer of 1878 and prompted Alcott to action. As a result, the school opened in 1879. A glance at the prospectus for the first two terms reveals how important the Westerners were. Among the five, quote, regular prof professors... For 1879, where W.T. Harris and H.K. Jones, they were joined in 1880 by Denton J. Snyder of St. Louis and S.H. Emery, Jr., was listed as director. Quote, it is significant, unquote, as Pouchman points out, quote, that Dr. Jones, the Platonist, and not Dr. Harris, the Hegel, Gale, Hegelian, was the co-founder of the school. Jones and Alcott originally conceived a platonic institution, but once Harris was invited to participate, the die was cast. This is how the die got cast in the creation of the Concord School of Philosophy. In one sense, of course, the inception of the school may be traced to the Bible of the nations for the fusion of paganism and Christianity which Alcott and Emerson had dreamed of, and in fact the two dreamers had even conceived a plan for an organization not unlike that of the Concord School. In August 1840, Emerson went so far as to ask Margaret Fuller, that's the other person that was lost to history, but she's not completely lost, but... Could have more attention. Margaret Fuller, the first editor of The Dial, if she did, quote, not wish to come here and join in such a work, unquote, which he then described. Quote, Alcott and I have projected the other day a whole university out of our straws. George Ripley, Henry Hedge, Theodore Parker, Mr. Alcott and I shall in some tantry town, say Concord or Hyannis. <laughs> announced that we shall hold a sem semester for the instruction of young men, say, from October to April. You take the summer off. Uh -huh. Since these names are all prominent in the history of transcendental thought, the direction of the school would have taken in perhaps obvious and several of the subjects Emerson proposed as suggestive of the desire to preach the union of all religions. All religions. Among the several topics he listed, history of opinion, theology, metaphysics, philosophy of history, the Catholic Church, history of paganism, modern crisis, and the ideal life. <clears throat> what we're trying to figure out is what is the ideal life in a modern crisis. <laughs> I'm going to pause for coffee hour.
Nevertheless, there would have been no school without the enthusiasm of the Western Platonist, that it should have been from the very beginning a great debate between the forces of Platonism and the forces of Hegelianism, and that the latter were to prevail if a winner needed need to be declared, are perhaps sure indication of the changing times. Hmm. I'm not sure I know enough about Hegelianism other than Kierkegaard was bothered by it. Uh, Alcott's journal reveals that he was disturbed at the trend of the lectures and in his own ineffectual way sought to promote a less speculative and logical method than the Hegel Hegelians were following. Quote, I confess full faith in Mr. Harris's logic, unquote. He wrote wistfully on July 8, 16, quote, but incapable of following the steps leading to his conclusions, unquote. Again that evening after, quote, discussing the Hegelian idea and methods, unquote, quote, I find my thinking is ideal, my method analytical rather than logical, and thus reaching the conclusion by concrete symbols for theological Ends this method in is the most more significant and effective reaching the many while the other affects but the few. Unquote. Although Alcott was to insist that quote, we have allowed Plato's text to sleep too long. Do you think it's been sleeping? We have allowed Plato's text to sleep too long, and that it, quote, it should be read along with St. John and St. Paul, unquote. He noted before the session was over that, quote, Harris has won general acceptance from all who have heard him speak, unquote. Even more significant, perhaps, as an ironic foreshadowing of things to come is an entry in the journal for August 1. Quote, Dr. Jones's conversation on Plato's dialectic preparatory to his doctrine of reminiscence is listened to with much interest. He treats the natural and supernatural states of the soul and illustrates his subject in modern experience. Darwinism is noted, noticed and partially discussed. The time has come, of course, when Darwin can no longer be dismissed by partial discussion. Alcott was whistling in the dark. Among the early lectures of the school were two people who have some place in the history of Taylor's rise and fall in America. Oh my God. The first of these is Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Dear, he's the primary friend and publisher of Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so he was in contact. That's Emily's publisher. <laughs> there you got your Emily contact. <laughs> what was she doing? She should have bailed out the Concord School, I think. Do you think Emily Dickinson's poetry can bail out America? The first of these, among the early lectures of the school, were two people who have some place in the history of Taylor's rise and fall in America. The first of these is Thomas Wentworth Higginson, 
as a friend of Alcott and Emerson and a participant in many reform movements of the century, he perhaps deserves more credit than he has thus far received in the study of American transcendentalism. Although Pachman is doubtless right that, quote, he followed more the literary tradition of Margaret Fuller than Emerson and Parker's concern with philosophy and theology. And the tickets is the only, I, I was amazed that she only had one poem to the Greeks. One poem to the Greeks? Uh, we don't know if she knew Greek, but she, I don't think she read Greek. She did go to school, but how you got to go a long time to, to learn Greek, probably. She read like Shakespeare and stuff. I know. Yeah, she was so crazy about Shakespeare. She didn't know Shakespeare comes from the Greek. Yeah. Shakespeare comes from the Greek. Yeah. I mean, it's a. Pro I mean, it's the same thing. His plays are the Greek plays. He read the Greek well, plays. You don't need. To she did read a lot of books. There, she could have read books about. She could have read Thomas Taylor. Uh -huh. I'm amazed that she doesn't rush all that movement in, uh, so close to her and well, with people she knew. She way. probably did know. Why mm. she doesn't mention in the, a few of her poems? There's only one. Only okay. Then that's how much she uh, got involved. Higginson was an admirer of Thomas Taylor and a collector of his books and mag manuscripts. Okay, that's friends. He's friends with Emily Dickinson. She could have borrowed from him. On July 16, 1881, responding to an appeal from Thomas M. Johnson, Higginson wrote. Here, we have Higginson speaking here. Quote, in answer to the inquiry made in the Platonists after original manuscripts of Thomas Taylor, I am glad to contribute a few facts respecting autograph notes made by him in two volumes in my possession. He has autograph notes. Hmm. It may be well to begin by saying that I have long been in the habit of picking up such of his translations as came in my way and have now some twenty-five volumes. In addition to these, I possess the two following Greek texts, both of which belong to his library and bear his autograph. <laughs> He's got his Thomas Taylor's autograph copies. I must say that the whole effect of these volumes has been to enhance my respect for the scholarship and literary method of Thomas Taylor. He is certainly one of the most unique and interesting figures in English literary history and deserves at least. But he never has had a full and acute bibliography of his works. I do not know that even their exact number has ever been ascertained. Unquote. The extent of Higginson's commitment to Taylor is suggested by the amount of information about Taylor's works he possessed. Although he does not presume himself capable of giving the full and accurate bibliography needed, he had made a fairly accurate count in including, and in concluding his article absurd. Quote, this makes 59 volumes known to exist representing 43 distinct works, and there are Taoist others. 
I wish some American admirer of Thomas Taylor would undertake a careful bibliography of his publications. Unquote. Since Higginson was for many years the mentor and friend of Emily Dickinson, whose favorite philosopher was Plato, she undoubtedly came to know his works through Thomas Taylor's translations. How many others may have been converted by Higgins' enthusiasm, we can only conjecture. It is clear, however, that Taylor's books were basic texts in transcendental circles. There you go, dear. We were trying to figure out the influence of Thomas Taylor on Emily Dickinson. You'd think Plato's her favorite philosopher. Emily Dickinson. Read that again. Since Higginson was for many years the mentor and friend of Emily Dickinson, whose favorite philosopher was Plato, she undoubtedly came to know his works through Thomas Ta through Taylor's translations. How many others may have been converted to by Higginson's enthusiasm? We can only conjecture. It is clear, however, that Taylor's books were basic texts in transcendental circles. So she knew them, right? Yeah. That's why we say they could change the name of American transcendentalism to just Thomas Taylorism. <laughs> Come on. Uh, uh -huh. Why not Platonism? You could call it Platonism, Neoplatonism, then, but they don't do that. Huh? Higginson's plea for a, quote, careful bibliography was answered. <laughs> Johnson pointed out in the Blightonist that Mr. <coughs> Orlin Mead Sanford of New York City <coughs> has probably the most notable set, 62 volumes of the writings of Thomas Taylor in, his, in this country. 62 volumes, my God. Hmm. That's a lot. He has printed an annotated catalog of his collection, which is very interesting to the numerous admirers of the great Platonist. Now he had 62 volumes. Remember, books are not easy to get, I mean. The same thing happened in when they had the crisis and the internet went down and there was you a shortage of books. Uh -huh. You see how all those mm. Greek ideas uh, mm. spread to Europe and from Europe to mm. America. And, uh, and they still don't know where sex exactly. Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's really bad about that. He still keeps the name Shakespeare. And Shakespeare stole. Uh -huh. Shakespeare, she thinks his works are the works of <laughs> He stole from the ancient Greek tragedians. <laughs> yeah, well, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't I? If I was to write a, let's say I write a play, why can't I steal from the... Stop stealing. He didn't do anything at all. He you can rewrite. He took his face. He put his name on it. You can rewrite him. He didn't rewrite He didn't have time to rewrite them. He did... He directed the plays, he produced the plays. That was an enormous work by itself, and it was 
very considerable. Uh, well, you can, you can, you can spend your time researching who the Shakespeare was and <laughs> the real Shakespeare. You can join the club. <laughs> We're trying to find out who... A number of Greek uh, women, women with Greek descent. Women? Yeah, because uh, oh. they couldn't put their names. Uh, or if it was a man, he would put his name. Why did he give them to Shakespeare? It doesn't make sense. Give them to Shakespeare? Yeah, he didn't let Shakespeare put his name. He was nobody in Shakespeare. What's that woman, Emily, uh, what's her name, Emily Bassano, Emily, what's her name? Emilia. Emilia. Emilia Bassano. Uh, no. I forgot her name already. She you was, forgot. She wrote, she was writing the way Orpheus, uh, in, he wrote in a way that uh, with the knowledge of all the ancient uh, wisdom, etc. You know, women like her, maybe her and a couple more. Because all of the place I doubt the way that Walter should. Uh, all right. So being being a biblical authority himself, by this time Johnson observed that Sanford quote lacks three volumes, two of which I have, and conclude with hope that Mister Sanford's unique collection will remain intact and ultimately find a permanent abiding place in some public library, where it may delight and benefit the scholars of future ages. So he's saying if he lacks three, that's 62 plus three is 65 books. Well, you have to go to, when we take our trip to Harvard, <laughs> to dig out, to visit Emily Dickinson's room at the Harvard Library, we can dig them up. Oh, yeah, let's see we're going to get the original manuscripts of Thomas Taylor, the autograph copies. That, uh, they have a major uh, a book, a uh, rare book, uh, library at Yale. That's where they are. Hmm. But you don't like dusty old rare books, do you? <laughs> The dust. You can get a, a electronic image of it, probably. Most of them are digitized. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. hmm. But though, then when the internet went down, and then most of them were lost, and uh, now books are very hard to get. Uh -huh. One other name he needs mention: Doctor Alexander Wilder. In the session of 1882 at the Concord School, he spoke on Alexandrian Platonism, a subject on which he was well informed. Uh, although Wilder is now almost forgotten, he was apparently a well-known author, editor, and lecturer in this, his day, and he was an early devotee of Thomas Taylor. In 1875, he had published an edition of Taylor's dissertation on the O.E. Lucinian Bacchic Mysteries with Introduction Notes, Emendations, and Glossary, and almost. From the beginning, he was the most prolific contributor to the Platonist. His translation of Iambicus, a treatise on mysteries, beginning in 
1881 and ending in 1887, was heavily indebted to Taylor's translation, and so too was the Platonic technology, a glossary of distinctive terms used by Platon and the other philosophers in an arcane and peculiar sense, which appeared in four issues of Volume 1. But he also contributed many articles and may have assisted in editing and published The Platonists from August to December 1885 when it was issued from Orange, New Jersey, near his home. Jock Johnson phrased Wilder as a critical scholar and profound thinker and pointed out proudly that Wilder was philosopher of Psychological Science in the United States Medical College in New York City, where he is now delivering a course, the second of valuable lectures. But he was already well known to many readers of the Platonists through his contributions to the Theosophists, whose editor wrote to Johnson, quote, So far we are sincerely charmed with the Platonists. It comes in good time and will fill one of the greatest needs of our age. Its value is the more enhanced in our sight by the promise we find in it from our respected friend and brother, Professor Alexander Wilder. To become one of its chief contributors, the news is gratifying indeed. We trust his too insensitive modesty may forget the enthusiastic, though never too exaggerated, opinion of his serene, sincere admirers and faraway friends if we repeat again that which we all honestly believe, namely that there is not in the United States a single scholar more competent than himself to elucidate to the reader the hidden beauties as well as the esoteric meaning underlying platonic philosophy. Who was that? He's referring to Thomas Taylor, I think. Uh -huh. Or Wilder, I don't know. The United States, he said. Oh, uh, uh, I don't know. I forgot already. <laughs> I don't. I'm only a two-bit reader and don't understand what I'm reading. Uh -huh. mm. I have to study much more before I understand anything. Uh -huh. mm. With such a background and interest, Wilder was obviously much more sympathetic with the Western Platonists than the Easterners and when the Westerners broke off from the Concord School in 1882 as a result of a decision against holding the sessions in the West on alternative years, Wilder joined with Jones to organize the American Academy as a winter school to be an anecdote, in some sense a rival of the Hagelian School at Hungard, which continued as a summer school. Huh, summer school. Would you have your school as winter or summer? I think it's got to be winter. Whether or not they felt this rivalry, the founders of the academy no longer participated in Alcott School. At the organizational, organizational meetings on July 2nd, 1883, Johnson Jones presided and Wilder acted as secretary. Among the 33 people present, according to Paul R. Anderson, was Johnson, Harris, and Block. Although Harris moved to the East and became United States Commissioner of Education. Wow. See, this Harris 
He's the United States Commissioner of Education. He remained a link between East and West, writing to thank the second editor of the Journal of the American Academy for a copy of the journal with a report of the Plato Banquet at Jacksonville, which he described as a, quote, sort of a university city for philosophy in this country. <laughs> Jacksonville. Interesting, where is that place? <laughs> I have hoped before this time, he added, to see a volume from Dr. Jones giving his platonic studies. Elected Corresponding Secretary at the Organizational Meeting, Thomas M. Johnson, was closely associated with the Academy throughout its existence, and it was intentional, apparently, that he should publish notices of meetings and worthy papers. In fact, the formation of the Academy in 1883 may have furnished the impetus for the revival of the Platonists, which had lapsed in January 1882. At any rate, the first issue of Volume 2... January 84 carried a notice of the new society outlining the organization, membership, purpose, and etc., and an subsequent issue quoted a resolution of the Academy that the several contributions were ordered to be transmitted to the Platonists for publication. Still another issue in 1884 emphasized the President's remark that, quote, this association is not local but continental, alluding, ironically, I think, to the closed corporation represented by the Concord School. Indeed, the Academy did grow astonishingly. By May 1884, there were 180 members. Fourteen new members were elected at the eighth monthly meeting, and the attendance was large. On June 21, 1892, when the Academy held its last meeting, it existed for just nine years. The cumulative roll of members contained 433 names. They came, as its president pointed out in 1884, from Maine to California and from Canada to the Dutch West Indies. Obviously proud of their international flavor, Jones insisted that we should con shall continue to maintain this character. We do not claim to be an academy of philosophers, but desire to be regarded simply as students of philosophy, united as disciples for mutual help. No, they but they're all organization. The aim of this word association, Jones observed on the same occasion, quote, is to find out persons of kindred thought and appreciations, unquote. They also sought, of course, to study writers with interest kindred to their own, the full record of their nine years. Deliberation would, I think, reveal an exciting chapter in American intellectual history, which is too often unnoticed or denigrated. As it is now, we are confined for the late early meetings to such fascinating fragments that Johnson could find space for. His account of the eighth meeting is particularly suggestive in regarding an early reference to William Blake, who shared their desire for communion with the diviner ideas and natures. William Blake? Through the, well, who did Blake know? Blake knew Taylor. Didn't he? They are neighbors. Like your neighbor. Mm -hmm. 
Humber Blake used to print uh, pictures of Greek pots. <laughs> Blake was a printer. <clears throat> hmm. Who share the desire for communion with the diviner ideas and natures, though through the occult lore of Jacob Bohemi and Plato's followers in this discussion following a paper on, quote, natural law in the spiritual world, Eliza Wolcott is said to have come and commented. Quote, William Blake claimed open vision of the supernatural. Quote, I do not see the external world, he said. It is only a hindrance. Like Blake, there is more reality to me in the glorious company of the angelic host, but like Paul, I am conscious of the two natures within me. Hmm. And not surprisingly, Thomas Johnson himself had found and appreciated the poet who conceived the material world as, quote, the delusion of Ulro, U-L-R-O. On a scrap of note paper which I found in his library, Johnson had registered his pleasant surprise at Blake's cosmological idealism. <laughs> Hmm. Blake, uh, Blake is highly idealistic. <laughs> He's a hmm. William Blake. William Blake with yeah. He's a mystic almost. With the uh, number one in with. The July number in 1884, Johnson was once more unable to continue the Platonist, and the Academy found it necessary to found a journal to record his transactions for non-resident members. Alexander Wilder became his first editor. Five years later, in a strange reversal, the Journal of the American Academy carried a flattering notice of one more of Johnson's valiant efforts to carry the message to the world of Bibliotheca Platonica which lasted for only four issues from July 89 to September 1890, quoted in translation from the Journal of the Savantes. <laughs> savant. Are you a savant? The Journal of the Savants. My dream. Quite some names for themselves. Lit up, I would get upset as a child when I'd see the word savant. And if I wasn't one... If I wasn't a savant, it was very upsetting. The Journal of the Savants, Paris, the article observed, quote, We believe America occupies a unique place in useful inventions and industries, but it appears that in that country there are many persons who cultivate philosophy, history, and also Greek and Latin literature is evidently the country of the future. We're living in the country of the future. And if, unfortunately, the study of antiquity becomes an extinguished light in Europe, we may hold the torch will be relighted in America. 
So it was that a surprise, but please, Paris writer named H. Weil introduced his review of the first volume of Johnson's last journalistic venture. Much of Weil's space was reserved for a paper by Alexander Wilder entitled Platonic Reflections on the Nature of the Soul, which before publication here had been the leading discourse in a symposium num given no November 7, 1888 in the celebration of... Terrestrial Descent of Plato at the home of the editor of the Bibliotheca Platonica, Osculio, Missouri, after pointing out that a similar symposium was planned for the house of Mrs. Julia P. Stevens in Bloomington, Illinois, for the following November. The reviewer observes that these, the quote, these things seem the beginnings and the promise of a new Platonic Academy, unquote, although he finds it, quote, very natural that the new Platonism of the 19th century should feel itself in harmony with the beliefs of the ages of antiquity. File registers considerable amazement at this Platonic movement in, quote, the West, the Far West, for which, quote, love of erudition, interest in the history of philosophy are not a sufficient explanation, unquote. Quote, the founding of a periodical devoted to the study of Platonism in the valley of the Mississippi is certainly very extraordinary. I found the word erudition. What the erudition means again? That's like learned to study. No That's knowledge. a savant. <laughs> Only savants would know what that means. Yeah, huh. hmm. You've heard of idiot savants. Yeah. Yeah. Don't make crumbs everywhere. I wanted to be a savant when I grew up, but I ended up an idiot savant. Mm -hmm. hmm. At least you recognize it, but you don't do anything about it. Oh. Um, if I read books aloud, if I read classical books aloud, I can both build up my vocal vo lungs and voice, and I can try to become a savant instead of an idiot savant. Well, I don't know if there's any hope by extreme repetition. If I meditate over four lifetimes, 50,000 hours, I can maybe have to exercise also. remove that idioticness. And to exercise virtue, you know? mm -hmm. it is to learn by your mistakes. Really? Mm. Uh, we read about Emily Dickinson in the Journal of the Savants, and we read about William Blake in Idealism and Platonism, and Thomas Taylor mostly. We learned about Emily Dickinson, you said? In this reading, we learned about her reading Taylor's translations, Thomas Taylor mostly, his influence on American uh, school of philosophy. And he brought about American transcendentalism largely here which is just idealism, which is platonic idealism, we believe. Uh, <sighs> right? If you read this book over and over, you could become a savant with great erudition rather than being an idiot savant. <laughs>